Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Darren K. Highland, MD, FRCPC, about his article, The Very Elderly Admitted to Intensive Care Unit, a Quality Finish, published in Critical Care Medicine and currently published ahead of print online. Dr. Highland works as a critical care physician at Kingston General Hospital in Kingston, Ontario. He's additionally professor of medicine and epidemiology at Queen's University and serves as the director of clinical evaluation research unit at Kingston General Hospital in Kingston, Ontario, all in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Holland. Yep, you're welcome. I certainly found your article quite interesting. I think it potentially elucidates some ways in which we can improve care for our very elderly in the ICUs and perhaps more importantly improve uh, communication points and discussions with patients and their families and surrogates. I was hoping maybe you could begin. Your group has been quite active and perhaps describe a little bit about the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group and the Canadian Researchers at the End of Life Network to give a little bit of a framework about the type of work that you're doing. Yeah, sure. This study is actually conducted under the auspices of those two uh, national networks, the Trials Group being a consortium of academically interested, research-minded critical care physicians and nurses who come together to foster multi-institutional work. You know, historically, a lot of clinical trials, but also observational studies, surveys, etc. On the other hand, we have CareNet, uh, which is the Canadian Researchers End of Life Network, where there's overlap with us as an ICU community, but also other disciplines, including palliative care, general internal medicine, geriatrics, etc. And our focus is on improving quality end-of-life care with a major focus on improving communication and decision-making. So we've done other research in improving communication, decision-making outside the ICU, but this piece is centered on, you know, in the ICU, the very elderly, what's happening, how do we improve end-of-life care broadly, and specifically communication and decision-making. And can you put this into context and perhaps describe a little bit about the overall, it seemed as though in reading this manuscript that it was part potentially of a larger study as well? Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell about the context and then a little bit about the study, and then I'll pause before we get into the results. But, you know, as, as you and listeners will appreciate, society is aging, and with the aging of society, increasingly we're seeing older patients. And the average age of our patients is increasing, but the proportion of patients who are very elderly, and for today's conversation, let's define that as, you know, greater than 80 years old, is increasing. You know, 20 years ago, it was maybe 10% of bed days in Canada, and today it's near 20% of bed days are occupied by patients aged 80 or, or older. There's a lot of existing literature that speaks to the underlying values and preferences for the very elderly. They value comfort in contrast to life prolongation. They prefer treatments that focus on quality of life versus treatments that sustain or prolong life. And when you juxtapose that value preference data with the care being actually received by the very elderly, it raises a lot of questions about 
the appropriateness of older patients in ICUs. And right at the beginning, I want to say this isn't about ageism or restricting access to critical care services based on age alone. It's more about should we align, you know, our treatment offered with the underlying values and preferences of patients and recognizing that most older patients focus on quality of life and prefer comfort measures. So, so therefore, we're, we're looking at trying to better align treatment with underlying values and preferences, which requires communication and decision-making. Before we jump in to try and fix or improve, let's describe what's happening. And so we initiated a longitudinal follow-up study of more than 680-year-olds admitted to ICUs uh, and 22 ICUs in Canada and tried to describe the journey from both the patient's point of view, which is the paper that we're going to talk about today, but I will also mention we collected a lot of data from a family member's point of view and we have a subsequent or additional publication that adds their perspective of uh, what happened and their experience and their ratings of quality. And so by combining this patient and family lens on admission to ICU and what happened you know, up to a year later, we can hopefully tell a story that highlights where we can improve. So the paper that you alluded to, I believe, was, was recently published in Palliative Medicine? That's correct. And I thought they were interesting complementary papers. So uh, for the listeners, uh, you can also refer to the, the journal Palliative Medicine. I believe it was published in the April edition. I wanted to clarify a, a couple of points that you've already made, and I wonder... As we speak about this topic, you know, I think it becomes challenging both at the higher level and also at the patient bedside. One is this idea of kind of comfort versus interventions or comfort versus life prolonging therapies. And, and I wonder when, you know, given the options between the two, some, some people naturally go towards one or the other. And certainly I think, uh, evidence would suggest that as people age, they're more likely to focus on quality of life and comfort. But I, I do wonder sometimes, are we presenting this dichotomy and should there be some kind of discussion in the middle and, and, and more overlap when we have these discussions? Yeah, I think what your question may be conflating values and preferences with actual care received. Let me explain what I mean by that. Like, I think it's quite appropriate to you know, elicit from a patient their value in a dichotomous way. You know, in general, do you prefer treatments that focus on keeping you comfortable versus, you know, extending life at all costs? And what's your underlying value construct? What's your preference for those kinds of treatments? But then we have to translate that into medical orders for life-sustaining treatments where clearly there's more than just a dichotomy or there's, there's several other therapeutic options or middle grounds. So I find it useful to elicit preferences and values that may help us get a sense of where this patient lies on this dichotomous uh, polarized scale. But clearly there are other options that we need to then translate that into as we think about medical orders for life-sustaining treatments. I think that was well said, and I guess another way to think of it is that the patient is the expert in their values and their goals, and we are hopefully the experts in trying to tailor recommendations and treatments to meet those goals and expectations. Yeah. And then I, I do wonder, and, and maybe perhaps this will come out as we discuss the paper further, while stated preferences prior to critical illness 
are well evaluated. We seem to have sometimes changes, and I think sometimes that's based on the way in which we present information, but also changes in preferences as people get sicker or face a new life-threatening illness and wonder how to work through those uh, issues as they evolve over time. Yeah, so I agree with you that there are issues about you know how we frame our, our presentation of information may lead to a different set of preferences and also the issue of stability of preferences when we're we're thinking through our preferences in a hypothetical state, and then when we actually experience a life-threatening illness, then you know maybe those preferences change. I think these data that we're reporting in critical care medicine are a bit different, though, because these are in the moment. You know, the patients in the ICU were eliciting a preference for what's actually happening. So there's no hypothetical, futuristic state that they're considering. You know, the patient's in the ICU, and we're asking the family member what the preference for the use or non-use of life-sustaining treatments are, and we're exploring the underlying value structure for care, you know, in this moment, in this episode of illness. You see how I'm trying to say that's a bit different than, hypothetically speaking, if you were to get sick, you know, what would you prefer? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's get into the study itself, and perhaps you can lay out how it was organized and actually carried out. Yeah, I think it'd be useful for me to explain that there are actually two cohorts of 80-year-olds admitted to the ICU. The one, which we call a hospital cohort, were consisting of sort of all 80-year-olds admitted, and we didn't actually interact with the patient nor the family. We did not get consent, for example. We had a waiver of consent to abstract data that were available in a hospital record. So when we talk about average duration of length of stay in the ICU and hospital mortality, we have this hospital cohort, relatively pure epidemiological cohort, that we can talk about those kind of data points. Within the hospital cohort, we have what we refer to as a nested cohort where we actually recruited the family member because we wanted to talk to them and abstract data and follow them and the patient if they recovered, you know, for getting additional data points post-hospital discharge. So we talk about a nested cohort, and that's a sample size of just over 600 patients and their family members that we got consent and uh, talked to and abstracted data. There were some eligibility criteria for that nested cohort, so it becomes a bit selected. You know, it may be an unrepresentative sample of the total sample, so I just flagged that for readers or listeners, uh, and we talk about that in the discussion. So we have these two cohorts, we follow them through the hospital, and I'm reporting on the outcomes here and the treatments that were received, and then any information we got from the family members with respect to the underlying values, their preferences, their sense of the um, use of advanced directives, whether the patient had an advanced directive, and we also abstracted a, a frailty scale or a score from the family member to help us uh, understand whether frailty was an impact was impacting or determining you know some of the uh, outcomes that we processes of care and outcomes that we observed in the patients any questions on what I've said so far no that's great so if I can just focus the results on the nested cohort for a minute what we observed was you know a patient population on average were 84 years old 32 percent were characterized as frail about half had a living will. Most family members did prefer that the patient have life supports used. That was 51% of respondents. But there were 21% who said, you know, I prefer comfort measures. 
and there were 13% who were un unsure uh, of what their actual treatment preferences were. And so we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. I think it's a useful narrative to say that on average, when an 80-year-old is admitted to intensive care unit at a group level, they'll stay just under a week in intensive care. They'll stay around three weeks in hospital, and their survival is somewhere between, you know, around 25% at hospital discharge and up to, you know, 50% mortality by 12 months. So that kind of group statistic I think is useful to the discussion when we talk about, okay, my, my loved one's admitted to intensive care, my, my very elderly loved one's admitted to intensive care. We as clinicians can help describe the pathway forward to family members now so their expectations are informed by this kind of evidence. What was a bit disconcerting to us was when we looked at the processes of care, when I say that I mean the use or non-use of life-sustaining treatments, the orders to withhold or withdraw life-sustaining treatments, they didn't appear to be any different for frail versus non-frail patients. And yet the outcomes for frail patients are systematically worse in terms of death, time to death, duration of hospital stay. So it doesn't appear that clinicians at this point are incorporating frailty into their prognostication and you know, treatment or non-treatment orders. Uh, moreover, we didn't see any impact of advanced directives either. At this point, you know, while we're already in the ICU, having an advanced directive or a living will didn't seem to have major impact on the kinds of treatments nor your outcomes. Can I ask you about those two points? They're excellent. I wonder, actually, if you could help us define frailty. And you ascertained frailty by speaking with families, and I wonder how often critical care physicians speak or ask questions specific to estimating frailty, and or, or are we just simply not paying attention to it? I don't think it's something we systematically abstract, and yet as we look at, you know, the literature around the elderly, clearly frailty is a key, you know, prognostic indicator, frailty representing the sort of the cumulative burden of comorbidities and physiological defects, limitations to the elderly patient. There are many ways to measure this, but the two we used was a frailty index, which we derived from a comprehensive geriatric assessment, which really was a battery of questions. I forget exactly how many, but numerous questions that tap into the deficits and the comorbidities of the patient. But you know, remember, we're interviewing the family to abstract that as well as a very simple to use, takes two minutes or less, clinical frailty scale, which has a little bit of text and a visual picture for the family member to identify, oh, this state, this health state best represents, you know, my, my loved one. So with those two measurements, we've got pretty good assessment of frailty. The one we're reporting here in this paper is the clinical frailty scale, which, like I said, in two minutes or less, we can get from a family member as to the degree of fitness or frailty you know, of the patient. So again, these are data points that we could systematically abstract from a family as part of our family history or interactions with the family about the patient's history, and yet we, we aren't doing that because it's not evident anyway to us in this study that that frailty construct is being used to influence care. Interesting. Certainly something to strongly consider going forward. And yeah. I wondered, as I was reading this, 
I don't know if there are differences between Canadian advanced directives and, uh, of course, we down here in the U.S. are U.S.-centric, and U.S. advanced directives. I know when I see a patient in the ICU who has an advanced directive, I think it's often a good starting point, but it generally is not very um, specific, and usually most of them usually pertain to a terminal illness, which is difficult to define, or a persistent vegetative state, and I wonder if that was similar in this cohort or in patients at large. Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities between the two countries in our construct of advanced directives. And I think we both struggle with language and terminology and the vagueness of what the patient is really trying to say. We didn't actually record what the advanced directive was. It's just, was there a written document that expressed the patient's wishes for treatment near or at the end of life, yes or no? And if I were to do this over again, I would collect more information on those expressed wishes. I should say that, you know, I'm a big proponent of advanced care planning. And what I mean by that is promoting a patient and or their family to discuss in a decontextualized way their wishes for treatments, you know, when they get sick as a clarification of what their values are and as an expression of a preference, not as a demand or order for an actual treatment because I'm, um, you know, those those treatments should involve us as clinicians in, you know, really going through an informed decision-making pathway where risk benefits treatment options are discussed and in a medical context, in this, in this medical problem, you know, we're making informed treatment decisions. So I don't really support the notion of, you know, a patient sitting at their kitchen table devoid of any clinical encounter or any interaction with the clinician and ticking a box providing instructions of actual treatments they want or do not want, you know, at the end of life. And in many provinces in Canada, those forms of instructional directives are not legalized. They're not legal documents. And in order to get a treatment, you have to go through a consent process. And certainly, you know, a unilateral sitting at my kitchen table ticking a box is not an informed consent process. So having said that, I do want to underscore the importance, though, of patients and families sitting at their kitchen table clarifying their values and noting their preferences, but let's not equate or conflate that expressed preference with an actual medical order for treatment. So we want to promote advanced care planning as a process that informs medical decision-making, but I don't want to come across as promoting instructional advanced directives that make patients unilateral decision-makers devoid of clinical input or clinical context. I would say that is beautiful. That is very well said and articulated, uh, and uh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. What else did you find that surprised you? Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned earlier there was about 20% of families who, you know, said comfort measures is what's best indicated here for my loved one. And, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, they're in the ICU, they're on mechanical ventilation, they're they're getting life-sustaining treatments for more than a week, and yet they're saying comfort measures. And then we looked at time to death for those who do not survive. And the average time from admission to death for non-survivors was something like 16 days. And actually it was, even in the group that preferred comfort measures, it was 12 days. If, if someone was unsure about their treatment preferences, it was even longer, 24 days. So what I'm saying here is it seems like there's a real prolongation 
of the dying experience, even for patients in whom comfort measures are indicated, and even longer if there's uncertainty about, ooh, you know, what were these underlying values and preferences of the patient. So I think that that little sort of subgroup finding really speaks to big question marks about quality end of life care and also points us towards earlier communication to elicit these preferences and earlier interventions to help patients or in this instance families clarify their values and deal with that residual uncertainty or decisional conflict. It's very interesting. I, yeah, I think it is in some regards, it's difficult. I'm not sure that, and perhaps you can help here. How do we define what is quality critical care and quality end of life care? You know, I do wonder about those decisions. I can think of multiple different reasons why it might play out that way. One that comes prominently to my mind, I suppose, is prognostic uncertainty. And we as clinicians have a difficult time determining who will benefit from a certain amount of critical care, what exactly that time frame should be, or what type of uh, time trial is is reasonable, and I want your thoughts there. Yeah, I I appreciate what you're saying. This is the real life that we face about you know being unsure about what's happening, and and I know that I as well as many clinicians will have said things like, well, you know, I'm not sure. Let's try you know, intubating and giving them a trial of ICU therapy for a couple of days and then we'll go from there. As if to suggest that we're offering a short sort of time-limited trial of ICU therapy to the very elderly. And I guess what we're showing here is that short time-limited trial, you know, turns out to be quite a long, prolonged experience for non-survivors. And certainly prolonging the dying experience is not consistent with good quality end-of-life care. And we've got some prior work that we did as a care net group, you know, defining from a patient's perspective what good care looks like at the end of life, and and that prolongation comes out loud and clear. Good communication, good decision-making come out loud and clear as good aspects of quality end-of-life care. When we look at what is happening in other jurisdictions, other parts of the world, there's described reports of the time from admission to death for the very elderly being in the range of one to two days in intensive care. So why is it so different in in this cohort or in this data set? I'd like also to share a little bit of an anecdote that I think may help explain some of these findings. And it was a family member who said, you know, I didn't actually realize that there was a decision to be made. My loved one got into the intensive care unit, and yes, I met with the doctor, but it wasn't explained to me that there were treatment options now. It was more I was receiving updates, I was being told what was happening, but it was just the train left the station and there were no other decisions to be made. It was just conversations around when the train might arrive or if it would arrive, but I didn't realize that there were any decisions to be made was the way this you know, was reported. And so I think that perhaps we as intensivists are, you know, we may have not have been involved in the original decision to admit that patient to the ICU. Maybe we were, maybe we weren't, but we're coming along, we're looking at a patient in the ICU, and we're, we're treating, you know, organs and physiology, and we're talking to the family about it, but we're really not addressing the bigger picture and revisiting, you know, the underlying values and preferences. And I think if we, in an earlier way, did that sort of review of the goals of care here, 
we might avoid some of this prolongation of the dying experience. Yeah, it's often the, the very knowledgeable and empowered patient or family that's able to bring up, hey, are there options here, rather than us being proactive and realizing and, and offering that, hey, there, there are different ways we could go here, and, and let's, let's talk about that, which it sounds like is what you're saying. But it, it, it is like a, uh, I always call the hospital, it's a machine that just keeps, keeps grinding away uh, <laughs> regardless of what else is going on yeah. in patients' lives. So. In fact, Michael, as a follow-up, what we're now doing is designing uh, what I'll call a decision support intervention, which has a facet going to the family to empower, I'll use your word, that family member in this decision-making process. So we provide information to them explaining them how decisions are made, explaining to them their role as substitute decision makers, coaching them on how they can perform best in this role and how to take care of themselves because we recognize this is a, you know, a, a stressful period for them. And then in that same sort of decision support intervention, making it clear to them that there are options, including comfort measures or palliation. And in that same decision support intervention, we're abstracting from that family member systematically now things like frailty, things like the underlying values and preferences, you know, of the patient. And then that, that information that we gather systematically from the patient family would then come into the awareness of the clinical team. So, so the intervention is multifaceted. It has, you know, something going to the family to capacitate them, but we're also pulling things from them and pushing that back to the clinician. So we think that sort of might be helpful in, in reducing the prolongation of the dying experience and just overall improving quality care. Part of that intervention also is the development of a clinical prediction rule. We talked about how earlier on in the conversation how, you know, dealing with this prognostic uncertainty is part of what might be driving this prolongation of the dying experience. Well, recall that we have this cohort now of over 680-year-olds that we've followed for a year and we've documented their outcome, we've comprehensively documented their baseline characteristics, including this frailty stuff. And so now we're, I, I can't really speak about it because we haven't finished it yet, but we are working on developing a clinical prediction rule so that if feature A and B and C are present or feature D is absent, you know, the probability of this patient being alive and in good shape a year later is X. If that kind of information might help clinicians in their prognostication and their subsequent communication and decision-making. As you were speaking, you know, it sounds as though the, and I couldn't agree more, that the idea of gathering data and developing prediction models makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I do wonder, sometimes we focus on trying to better predict prognosis and uh, to guide decision-making. I wonder about more so perhaps using that data to help figure out, okay, where, where are the points that we could improve quality of care and actually have better outcomes on, on some of these patients? And as time goes on, certainly we've had improvements where we've had, you know, more quality survivors than in the past. And, and that I, I think we get caught up between the balance of trying to make sure we're doing the right thing for individual patients moving forward, but also trying to improve overall care outcomes in the future. And I, I didn't really articulate that as well as I would have liked to, but I wonder if you have thoughts or understand what I'm getting at. Yeah, and I might just sort of put a plug into a clinical pathway that we're trying to develop for the very elderly in the ICU, which involves an early intervention to 
sort of review these goals of care, right, to be sure that if the patient, you know, is someone in whom wanted full court breath, you know, all these life-sustaining measures, then that's great. Let's do it. And then we'll plug in the next set of interventions, which, you know, focus on optimal nutrition and rehabilitation or early exercise, because, you know, these very elderly patients are systematically excluded from a lot of the trials of the supportive interventions that, you know, impact quality of survival. And so we need to, you know, really be thoughtful and considerate about how they apply to the very elderly, perhaps even generate more RCTs to show the level of evidence and safety of these interventions in the very elderly. But my point to address your point was really that, you know, for people where there's a, a will to survive and an intention to treat aggressively, we need to apply best practices and nutrition and exercise to improve their physical recovery. But for those in whom, you know, perhaps a, a more conservative, a more comfort measures oriented or a palliative approach is indicated, then we need to rally the ICU community to be optimal providers of palliative care. So the pathway will involve this early communication intervention to sort out, you know, who needs palliation, who needs full treatment. And I'm being a bit oversimplistic in thinking that there's really just two categories, but for the purposes of making my point, and then we need to provide those optimal treatments such as nutrition, exercise, or rehabilitation early in the ICU state to optimize the long-term outcomes of the frail elderly. Is that consistent with what you were trying to say? No, absolutely. I think you you understood me better than I understood myself. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, you know, the, the idea that if the staff is thinking that this is very unlikely to move forward in a positive direction, that those aggressive type of interventions that may actually help in a, in a selected few should be perhaps played out in a different way. And, and I must say, uh, listening to you and, and all the work that you've done and, and all the work that your group, CareNet, has, uh, it will be doing in the future is really uh, wonderful, and we look forward to future work. Are there other thoughts that you wanted to get across that we didn't cover? Well, I mean, there is an economic component to this story, and uh, I don't want to stress on it because really the focus of our work is improving, you know, quality end-of-life care. So just from arguing from principles of improving end-of-life care, it should be worth it for us to do something about this. But at the same time, you know, we can reduce ICU resource utilization by shortening this dying experience. We can make our beds more available for patients who will derive greater benefit if we shorten the prolongation of the dying experience. So, you know, there are some efficiency questions, cost questions that could be asked. And as you, as you relate back to my care pathway idea, you know, we could probably do a lot better job for the very elder than the ICU with a neutral cost equation by de-investing in the use of life-sustaining treatments in patients who don't actually want it and reinvesting those resources into the under-resourced nutrition and rehabilitation and other supportive measures in the patients who really want it. So that de-investment, reinvestment in the right patient strategy might be a cost-neutral thing. But again, these are economic stories that are secondary to the overall let's improve the quality of care, let's improve the quality of communication decision-making. Sure, and in many ways, the improving quality of care and meeting patients and their families' expectations and goals actually results in those types of cost containments or cost uh, reallocation that you're, that you're speaking of. So they, in many ways, they align. Mm-hmm. 
Great. Thank you. It was really great to speak to you. If you have other thoughts that you wanted to get across, now would be the time. I think that's everything, Michael. Thanks. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on family presence, evidence versus emotion? Or SCCM Pod 232 on assessing family satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash Project Dispatch. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., FACS, FCCM, is an Associate Professor of Surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.